This is the Horse Radio Network. You're listening to the Stall and Stable Show, ideas for happy horsekeeping. In this episode of the Stall and Stable Show, I talk with beloved equine veterinarian, Dr. Madison Siemens. The conversation covers everything from what it's like treating horses in the mountains of New Mexico to natural selection, differences in horsekeeping between urban and rural environments, and advances in science that can help reduce the number of catastrophic breakdowns of racing thoroughbreds. All that and more. So listen in. This is episode 108 of the Stall and Stable Show. Today's Wednesday, January 4th, and I'm your host, Helena Harris. Please support our sponsors as they help make this show possible. Our sponsor this week is American Stalls. Horse stall equipment is one of the largest investments that you'll make for your horse's safety and comfort. This is why American Stalls focuses on equipment that fits more than just the inside of your barn. Their mission is to design products that fit your farm, your design goals, and your lifestyle. And it all has to stand the test of time. You know what they say, do it right or do it over. Well, no one in the horse world has the time or the money to do things over. So doing it right the first time means doing it with American Stalls. To learn all about their extensive selection of fine stall equipment, visit them online at AmericanStalls.com or follow them on Facebook and Instagram where you'll find lots of great photos of their products. Dr. Madison Siemens is that unique combination of super intelligent, wise, kind, and humble professional. These qualities make him not only a trusted veterinarian, but a great teacher and storyteller. His devotion to improving the lives of horses and the people who love them is part of his greater purpose. A professional horseman for over 40 years, Dr. Siemens practices equine medicine, surgery, and dentistry in Capitan, New Mexico. He's a 1985 graduate of Texas A&M University and has a graduate degree from the University of Florida. He was a teaching resident at UC Davis in the 1980s, where his focus was on equine reproduction. During his tenure at UC Davis, he was an invited speaker at an international equine reproduction symposium and authored research published internationally. In addition to his accomplishments as a veterinarian, Dr. Siemens spends his spare time painting, drawing, writing, and composing bad cowboy poetry. So let's welcome Dr. Siemens to the show. Good morning, Dr. Siemens, and welcome to Stall and Stable. Good morning. Thanks for having me. We have a lot to talk about, and I don't know how we're going to do it in just 30 minutes, but we're going to do our best. First off, I want to say thank you for all of your help and insight as I have been navigating the, the bumpy road that is Clarabelle and her distal limb wound. So thank you very much for that. I want to do that publicly. Well, you're welcome. We're going to talk today about what life is like as a veterinarian in your neck of the woods, which is a big neck. <laughs> you're based in New Mexico, right? Yeah. Okay. And, you know, that's very different than where I am here in New England on the East Coast. Tell our listeners about what it's like to be a vet in New Mexico. Well, I guess it's no crazier here than it is anywhere else. There's, we definitely have a, uh, 
a different demographic of not only of people, but of patients. I've, uh, I practiced in Kentucky for a little while. And so I kind of understand what it's like more in the East, but you know, I've been out here in the West for so long, it's kind of hard for me to get back to relating to what things would be different from, uh, which is ours is a strictly, uh, rural setting versus that of a, of a more urban setting. You know, our, our horses out here tend to be using horses, so our treatment options and our diagnostic options are probably a bit different than they would be in a more urban setting. And so, you know, at the, the annual conference of the American Association of Equine Practitioners happens every year someplace in this country. And it's an it's an educational body. It's not a um, it's not a social organization. It's educational. So I get to talk with veterinarians from all over the world. And so there's there's some definite differences, but there's some similarities, too. We're dealing with the same animal. Our challenge here, I think, is we're in Lexington. Uh, we got a, a, a foot problem on a horse, and we can't really figure out what it is. Uh, you know, two or three thousand dollars for an MRI is is not out of the range of a lot of people's uh, horse budget. Here, if I can get somebody to spend two or three hundred on an X-ray, I'm I'm pretty happy. So, yeah. uh, you know, MRI and CT and some of the more high tech things that we can do now, which while phenomenal. We're not within the reach of a of a lot of of a lot of horse people. Our horses here tend to be using horses. My focus has always been ranch horses. Some show horses to a certain degree, but more uh, roping type show horses, not show like you know with fancy grooming and all that kind of stuff and covered arena, but competition type horses, trail horses, some endurance horses. So there's a little different demographic there. Because we don't tend to have some of the problems that that horses and stalls have, you know, I don't see osteoarthritis in these using horses nearly to the same level that that a horse that's a, that's a, that a show horse or a, a light pleasure horse that's that's in a stable twenty three hours a day. Yeah, and uh, that begs the question, you know, so there's a lot of competitive horses on the East Coast. Uh, you know, competition, show, pleasure seems to be the. Um, what's most popular or most common here, but there, because the West is so big and there aren't these horses, you call them using horses, which I love, they're workhorses. They have a yes. different purpose. And a lot of times their owners will have different perspectives on their care. And Tara Tibbetts, the host of, of Stall and Stable West, talks a lot about how horses in the West do so much better when they're left to their own devices, when their natural <laughs> systems, right? When their coats can grow out, when, figure. right? Um, there, but there's a balance between I, I need my horse to work or even if you're showing, I need my horse to perform in some way, but I don't want to interfere too much with how he needs to take care of himself. What, what typically is the type of breed that you run into is it quarter horses mustangs what do you see the most of oh we're we're probably 90 plus percent american quarter horses out here there's a few of the blm horses the aka mustangs which you know it's a mixed bag of you know breed profiles for those horses uh and they tend to as as a rule they tend to have the fewest numbers and severity of problems because 
they've had that perfect selection process, you know. Get yeah, they're mutts, right? They've they, got that mix of they, genetic material that makes they, them survive. They are, let's let's call them hybrids. <laughs> I, I, to me, yes, mutts is a term of endearment. Um, when I worked as a veterinary technician, we used to always comment on how few mixed breed dogs actually had problems. It was always the purebreds that seemed to have issues. So I kind of extrapolated and said, gee, I, I think mixed breed horses are probably a little bit easier to take care of because they absolutely. have fewer inbred problems. So yeah, absolutely. You're- well, they they have not been selected for a. I guess there's two ways of looking at it, either subjective or objective selection criterion. You know, we we select what some thoroughbreds would be selected for would be speed, and what others would be their ability to jump. So we have some subjective selection criteria that will alter the way these horses perform and survive in different settings. So I think the uh, the BLM horses or the so-called Mustangs, I think those are, as far as the survival mode, those horses have the perfect selection criteria. They either, they can either move and stay sound or they become coyote bait. And talking then about the American quarter horse, and my understanding in the quarter horses that I've owned, they're extremely versatile. They're very hardy. They're very handy. And if they're not like hyperbred for like halter classes or or for a particular look and type, do you see a lot of variation in the quarter horse among your the patients that you see? That, that's that's a real good question. So when you think about and I and my friends over in, in Amarillo at the AQHA will probably have a stroke when they hear me say this, but they they actually have more than one breed now. If you look at the racing type quarter horses, those horses are all seven eighths thoroughbred. They all they all go back to three bars, or not all, but I mean the vast majority of go back to some thoroughbred stallion, because they years and years and years ago they developed something called a register of merit. So if a horse could run a distance at a certain speed, well then they'd give him papers. They didn't care where he came from, but well I'm not that may be a stretch. Bottom line is he didn't have to have permanent quarter horse papers to achieve permanent quarter horse registration if he could run fast. And so those horses go back to seven eighths. Those are, are thoroughbred horses. The halter types they all go back to a specific type that came from. Well, it goes back further than than uh, impressive back to Oto and and Wimpy and some of those horses that were selected for that specific type. And then you've got the working type horses, which are rainers and cutters. And those are all, all have a similar genetic background. So we've got racing horses, we've got halter horses, we've got the working type horses. And then even there's a subset of those horses that are pleasure horses. And they all go back to a, a whole different demographic to I jack uh, some of that line of, of quarter horses go back to a specific type of, you know, horses that just jog down the rail in a, in a show ring. So yeah. they've got at least four different breeds, depending upon those different bloodlines, like the cutting horses, they all go back to dock bar. Not all, but I mean, a lot of them, these of the modern cutting horses go back to dock bar. So yeah, there's, there's a whole variety of that. But I think that most of the working cow horses in this country would all be in that line that come from those working horses, mostly the the cut type horses. What kinds of issues, health issues, do you find in working horses? What tend to be the most, you know, pop up the most often? Well, those horses that are that are out working for a living and they don't have they don't they they're not inside a barn someplace. I don't see those horses very often. 
And is that because they're they, they stay healthy or because exactly. they're just exactly. not their owners are like, yeah, we're they'll be fine. <laughs> well, ex- well, exactly. And I think we pamper these guys too much. And and some of these ranchers, you know, if I get a call from them, I know it's a train wreck because they've doctored them themselves, you know, is doing as, as good as they can. But most of these horses just don't have major problems because they're outdoors. You know, we we're in a in a high desert environment, and so parasites is not not a real big problem for us. You know, these horses have worked really hard, and so osteoarthritis is not a problem for us. Uh, the types of, of horses here that we see most commonly with problems are those that are in, in small confined areas and public boarding facilities that are ridden once or twice a week. I'm just going to let that sink in for a minute. It's so hard to let go of needing to micromanage our horses to keep them <laughs> safe and sound and healthy and working. And yet it's the exact opposite that seems to be working for these horses. Well, precisely. I, I just did a consult with a lady this morning that's concerned about uh, this cold snap coming in and her horse, you know, being at, at risk for colic, which is a, a whole nother conversation. But but she was talking about it getting down below freezing, you know, was, was going to be in the 20s. Years ago, years ago, I uh, was working on a big ranch in the Panhandle of Texas, and we had some, some early foals and a late winter blizzard. And uh, it was five degrees above zero. The wind was blowing 40 miles an hour, and there was a foot of snow on the ground. And there was two foals out there, and they got so cold that it literally froze the tips of their ears off. Mm. And these, these foals are a month old. And they're running and bucking and jumping and playing and nursing on their moms and just having the grandest old time. <laughs> and, and it literally got so cold that it froze the tips of their ears off. And you see those those types of frostbite things in in, uh, in mountain horses because there's not a lot of blood flow in the tips of the ears. And when they're up there below zero at, at, at an elevation, it will freeze the tip, tips of their ears off. And yet they're healthy other than having some ragged looking ears and these babies. They never look back. Yeah. So I think I think you know the heated water and the heated barns and the twelve different kinds of blankets and all of that kind of stuff is something we do for ourselves. But I don't believe that we're doing our horses a service, a good service, doing it that way. And I think uh, water consumption is important to keeping a horse's uh, digestive system, body, everything healthy. You know, we do experience a lot of colic when we micromanage our horses. Um, <clears throat> I have a very small property, so I, I can't help but kind of micromanage my horses. I try to be as hands-off as possible, but I do also try to make sure that the water is palatable so that they don't have to work too hard to get to it. So if it freezes, um, plus I have anxious thoroughbreds who are prone to all sorts of issues. You know, if if a leaf yeah. blows, their tummy hurts. But as you're seeing patients, whether it's for wellness visits or to help fix a problem. Going back to the time you spent at the AAP recently, being able to take certain diagnostic tools out into the field farther and farther, technology has enabled practitioners like you to bring modern technology into the mountains, into these working horses. Uh, Tell us a little bit about how advances in technology have helped you provide better service to the horses in your care. Oh, I'll tell you what, the technology's been, just been amazing. I mean, I'm, I've been doing this for a while, so I can go back to the days where, you know, we just, just had to rely on our senses. 
to a large degree. I mean, I've always had I've always had X-ray radiology in my practice, but the quality of images that we were seeing at the in the university settings, at the at the referral hospital, state of the art type settings, has changed dramatically in the last forty years. I mean, unbelievably so. And so now the digital X-ray system that uh, most of us have in the back seat of our pickup truck that'll that'll fit in a suitcase. Uh, so far superior to anything that we would have seen even 20 years ago. So that and the advent of the portable ultrasound, when I was first in practice, uh, there was no such thing as a portable ultrasound. The ultrasound machines they had in hospitals 40 years ago were as big as a Mini Cooper. I mean, they were just huge. And uh, there's no way to haul one of those around uh, in a mobile setting. But uh, the advent of the of the portable digital radiographic systems and uh, and the portable digital ultrasound systems uh, has has taken a lot of the guesswork out of uh, how do we make diagnostics in the in the field. I mean, because in in reality, it doesn't really cost more for me to do a really high end digital X ray than it did using the old analog films that were just nothing but sort of a shadow of a bone. Yeah. Now, I mean, we still, it's still a shadow, but it's a real high tech shadow. And the stuff that the images that I can generate out of the backseat of my pickup right now will be as good or better than uh, anything you'll get at any veterinary college or referral hospital on the planet. It's that good. It's that accessible to all of us now. So I'm tickled about that. It's really leveled the playing field. Oh, it truly has. I mean, the yeah. diff- one of the differences between just some guy running up and down the road in a fire engine practice like I have and a referral hospital is, is the quality of images. And so back in the day, you know, if we didn't have good quality radiographs, well, then we'd have to refer these horses just to get some images. Now that's no longer the case. My wife uh, fell off a horse here last year and broke her arm. So, of course, I took x-rays ever before I took her to the orthopedist. So we roll into the orthopedic surgeon's office. He's got this million dollar machine and lots of techs running around and they take some x-rays over on, which I knew was broken anyway. And so I just, you know, look at these images and I'm not impressed. And I, I asked the surgeon, I says, uh, what about that chip fracture in her radiocarpal joint? And he looked at his image and he goes, there's, there's not a chip there. Oh, yes, there is. I will send you some images if you would like. <laughs> He looked at me like I just got off the bus with a chicken under my arm. And he says, what? And I go, yeah, I x-rayed her before I brought her in. He says, he said, you'd be surprised how seldom that happens. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for listeners who don't know, I'm working with Dr. Siemens on a special project. And he also has a book that's going to be coming out very soon. And one of the things that really struck me is, in the book, you recount your experience as a young or new veterinarian and the things you thought you knew but didn't. And then over time, how your experience has changed the way you you view life, the way you treat your patients. Do you lean heavily on that experience? I mean, you have to. Like When you go to see a patient, can you look at something and say, yep, I'm pretty sure I know what that is. Let me take some pictures just to confirm. How confident are you in what you're seeing when you first meet a new patient or you're going out for a case and uh, just based on your experience that you're like, yep, this, this kind of fits the profile of what I think it is. You don't want to fall into this hubris about, you know, stuff, you know, because that, that'll come back to bite you. But in reality, this stuff is all pretty basic. It's not simple by any stretch, but it's pretty basic. 
And somebody told me once, and I think it's, I think it's a stretch. One of my professors, Joe Joyce, he was the guy that said, don't worry, Siemens, no matter what you do, you can't kill all of them. <laughs> that guy, he, <laughs> he, he said, 90% of what we do, you could teach a pretty reasonably intelligent monkey. to." And I, I, you know, that's a stretch, but I think a lot of it, again, a lot of this stuff is pretty basic, although it's not simple. So you, you start with the basic premise, like, for example, if the horse doesn't eat, Okay, it's probably a colic. It's not an ear infection. It's not a foot lameness. I mean, there's little things that you can kind of put together. If the old the old adage is, if you hear hoofbeats, don't look for zebras. Mm. Look for horses. Okay, it's common. It's the common thing because it's the common thing. And so there's there's a lot of that. And then with some practice and having Mark Twain said it best, you know, good judgment comes from experience, which comes from bad judgment. And so having made every possible mistake uh, that anybody could ever make in veterinary medicine, I've done all of them at least once, sometimes twice, if I really liked them, that uh, you, you can understand, you know, what certainly what you don't want to do. I've got a guy that has a his pilot's license in it. When he was in pilot school, they said there's old pilots and there's bold pilots, but there's no old, bold pilots and so the, the same goes for surgeons and there's times to cut and there's times to just wait and see. And I think having made so many of those mistakes earlier in my career, I've learned when to wait and see and when to dive in. And yeah. that, that just takes time. They can't teach you this stuff. I mean, you just, you just, you just got to make a lot of mistakes and figure it out. And find that balance point, you know, and, you know, I make a lot of mistakes. I just made a very expensive one with my horse keeping. Uh, and that's part of what makes us professionals at this point in our careers is we can take the wisdom of our mistakes and the effort to correct them and to, you know, have better judgment. Um, I, I don't think that you really can replace the wisdom that comes from experience. That doesn't mean we're not going to keep making mistakes going forward. What that's propels us? What's how we get wisdom? That's, right. That's the fun part is making all those mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's this. Now this does not apply for every veterinarian, but it applies to every veterinarian I know, and it don't sure applies to me, is they can't teach me how to be a veterinarian in eight years. They can only teach me how to pass the board exams so I can get a license, so that I can be really dangerous for about 20 years while I'm learning how to practice veterinary medicine. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a team effort, and. Uh, I love working with my veterinarian when they listen and we bounce ideas back and forth and you know having a good rapport with your vet is so important because you leave you know you you can bring x y and z expertise to a case but then you go home and the rest is left up to us to the owners so I think having a good rapport with the vet is really important what's your perspective on that and and how do you maintain a good rapport with your clients well, I've got one or two that would suggest that I can't, but uh, there's there's a few. I think a couple of folks like me. I mean, I've been in business for a while, so I've learned how to that that people skill thing about listening to Mrs. Wiggins talk to you about Queenie. I mean, there's sometimes most of my of my clients know the right questions to ask, and they're very observant because Queenie is theirs, and they know when something's not right. And so, man, you got to learn to listen to that. Because you, you guys, my clients, you know, you guys are my eyes and my ears and my hands on the ground. And you know, when something's not right. And just because I roll up on a, on a horse and I've learned this the hard way, just because I roll up on the horse and I can't find anything wrong with that horse today, that does not mean that there's something smoldering. 
And so that's when you just take a step or two back and we think about doing some blood work, watching them move, watching them go under saddle. It's amazing what you can learn just by watching the horse go. When I was in veterinary school, an anatomy prof handed us a bag with a, a paper bag with a potato in it and a styrofoam cup full of uh, clear liquid. And he passed it around to the class and he says, what's in this? Most people smell the liquid. Most people felt around on the bag. Some people even opened the bag and looked in it. There was a potato in there. But he said, he said, you have just exercised your first experience in veterinary diagnostics. You know, the science of medicine changes every day. There's a new technique. There's a new machine. There's a new something that changes the science. But the art of medicine has not changed since Adam Lance, the first abscess on his T-Rex. Okay, you got to use your eyes and your hands and your intellect and, and the sound, like the sound of a horse, of a lame horse walking on pavement. You'll pick up that lack of symmetry, boom, right now, even if you can't really see it. And so this is where the fruits of my practice, this is where the fruits of our profession really lie in that ability to use all of our senses and our intellect. And that intellect goes with not only what you've learned in school, but also what you've learned in this, call it the school of hard knocks. You've been out there and you've seen this and you've done that. And there's certain things you can diagnose on the phone. There's certain things you can diagnose from the window of your truck. And that's, that's where you can put all this together. And so, you know, I mean, if, if you, you got a, you got a sick horse and you just see him urinate some dark cloudy urine, that's a great sign. Okay. You know, his kidneys are working. Yeah. You, know, you don't, you don't need thousands of dollars worth of blood work to figure out if his kidneys are functioning. Now, if that same horse is a sick horse, he pees a gallon of clear urine. Now you got problems. Yeah. He's not able to concentrate his urine. So it's those little things like that, that really help you put this clinical picture together. And so an x-ray of a horse that you've never seen before really doesn't tell you a lot. You can't, if you can't put your hands on him and watch him go, I mean, he may have a, a, a little aberration in the, that shows up on the radiograph, the images. The but he may totally, have had that all along and been yeah, doing exactly. just fine with it. Yeah. The horse is totally sound. And yeah. so, you know, what's wrong with this horse? Well, I don't know. You just spent a lot of money on an x-ray and he's sound. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> you know, I, I had this sort of theory and it could be out there, but I had this theory that I like to have sort of the key points of my horse's x-rayed or ultrasound as a baseline so that if something does show up, a lameness or something odd, I can compare anything that we're doing with now to what their baseline is. Does that sound like a waste of money or something that's a good idea? I don't necessarily think it's a bad idea, but where I practice right now, if, if I can get them to let me x-ray a horse that's got a major problem, I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah. So yeah. establishing a baseline for, for again, we're in, a, we're in a different population here. We're in a different human demographic. Uh, and I've got a few people that would pay for that. I do. But I think as a general rule, I would much rather see them spend money on preventive medicine things than something like that. So to keep him up to date on his vaccines. We have a different disease season out here because our mosquito season is very finite. So we don't need to vaccinate horses now. Yeah, there ain't a bug within 100 miles of this place. But I mean, you know, I, I think for me, the reason that the longevity of these horses has, has gotten to the point where it is now. I mean, when I first started to practice, a 20 year old horse was ancient. Uh, now, fast forward 40 years, there's still a lot of 20 year old horses that are in high level of competition. I think our understand our understanding of nutrition and dentistry has changed all of that. 
I'd much rather have somebody let me take care of his teeth than uh, than get a baseline of his feet with a radiograph. That begs another question. How much of preventative care is education? And where do people get that? Where do your clients get the kind of education that they need? You know, they can have a conversation with you once a year, maybe during vaccine time. Um, but do you find that prevention relies very heavily on education? Well, that's that's a really interesting concept. And I, I can approach that in a couple of different ways. The term doctor and physician are used interchangeably. Okay. But you go back to the root word. And the word doctor actually comes from the root word teacher. And a physician is a physic is a laxative. And then the suffix I-N like technician. And so a physician is a giver of laxatives. So I have been both. I prefer the former. So what I would like to be able to do, and, and things change every day. It's crazy. My first adventure to the American Association of Equine Practitioners was in 1984. There were 600 veterinarians in a big hotel bar room in Dallas. Two days of nothing but the new stuff on equine medicine and surgery. Two full days. And I walked out of that meeting just, you know, intoxicated with all of the new information and wondering how could they ever come up with more than that. Three weeks ago, it was in San Antonio, Texas. There was over 5,000 veterinarians, and there was four or five different lecture halls going at one time for five days, and it was all new stuff. This is the information so, age. It truly is. It and is. So, and so my job as a teacher, and, and I think the job of every veterinarian should be as a teacher, is to help you to stay at least somewhat current on what we think now and things change daily. Let me tell you, let me tell you the, the things that we were doing 20 years ago, not everything, but some of the things we were doing 20 years ago that was considered the standard of practice would be considered malpractice. Now there was a time when horses in public boarding facilities received a pace warmer and a flu and rhino booster every 60 days. That was the standard of practice. That was the state of the art. Now, we know that that's not only not a good thing to do, that's a bad thing to do for several different reasons. So that's why it's important that we stay current. Having been doing this for a while, I've seen a lot of things come and go and heavy on the go. Some stuff out there that was like, oh, man, this is the best thing that ever happened. And you can't even buy that anymore. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. it's just bad. So speaking of the AEP, I love that you get so excited about it. What were your favorite takeaways? What kind of knocked your socks off that you learned this go around? And what other things really inspired you or surprised you? Well, I, I get surprised every year. I mean, there's there's something new and it's just so much fun visiting with other veterinarians and, and, uh, and just seeing all of the latest stuff. One of the things that's been in the news recently was I found very interesting is these catastrophic injuries on the racetrack. Thoroughbred racehorses have been under some scrutiny with uh, animal rights folks and people that just care about horses because there have, it appears that they have a greater than average incidence of these catastrophic injuries. And it happens on national TV, and that's really a bad place for it to happen. And so the horse is running down the racetrack and he breaks a leg. You know, I mean, it's just awful. And so, well, he didn't step in a gopher hole. And so, I mean, there, there is no more perfectly groomed surface on the planet than Churchill Downs, you know what I mean? Or Belmont Park or any of those places, Santa Anita, you know? And so we've known for a long time, Wayne McElroy did a study, goodness, 20 years ago. And it was questionable a little bit because he looked at about 100 horses 
that had these catastrophic injuries. And so after they did the postmortem, the autopsy on these horses, they found that 100% of these horses had underlying bone pathology in that bone that broke, 100%. So we've suspected that there was underlying pathology, but we just didn't know why. And so over the recent 20 years or so, there have been some very interesting studies that will give us some idea of what's going on. One of them was, well, you shouldn't be running two-year-old horses. Oddly enough, if you don't run two-year-old horses, if you don't train them to some level, I don't mean get stupid, but I mean to some level, you will actually decrease their bone density. And so we know, for example, we know that we don't like to start horses until they're two. And the reason is because those growth plates above their knees aren't fused yet. Whether or not that's valid is, I think the jury's still out on that. But ha- what we know is that there's a, there is a group of cells that are making bone and they are recruited because of stress. And if you don't work these horses, say if you wait till they're three or they're four, they will have lower bone density than those horses that we worked with, with weight, with some weight on them uh, when they're two, because that, that, those, that population of bone cells is going to be active during a finite period of time. Right. So that's why, they, that's why they quit growing after they're two or three. So God. bone does have the potential to grow and develop the way muscles do through stress. Absolutely. Interesting. So, so fast forward. So McElroy's work showed that, yeah, these horses are underlying bone pathology, but why? Fast forward about 15 years and Larry Bramlage and his group there at Kentucky showed that uh, the horses that do, do these repetitive motions. So the horses that are just taken out to the racetrack and galloped in one direction at the same pace for hours and hours and hours a week, it's just like taking a wire. So you can take a a metal wire like a coat hanger and bend it four or five times and it's not going to break. You bend that same coat hanger in that same way over and over and over again and that's where it's going to break. So we know that repetitive motion is a factor. And then we know that these horses that show us some lameness, we can bring those horses back into work after they're sound, but yet their body hasn't had time to catch up and heal. And so uh, Sue Stover got one of the Milne Award in this year. That's a that's kind of a lifetime achievement award for equine practitioners. She's been working on these problems for over 30 years. I've known her. Yeah, 30 years. Brilliant, brilliant woman at UC Davis. Her deal was what is it about racehorses that tend to lend themselves to these catastrophic injuries? Because so, bone pathology is a pretty generic term. Pathology is, can mean anything. So, all so kinds of stuff. Okay, yep, so she's yep. her job is let's narrow this down and find out what pathology actually means in this case. And so what it is, is it's that repetitive motion that makes them lame. And so we lay them up for a couple of months and then they're sound. And then we put them back into work. And a month later, we put them in a race and they blow up. And the reason is, because their pain sensation goes away before that healing process is complete. And so now we're looking at somewhere between 90 and 120 days after they've gone completely sound. That's what it takes for that healing process to complete. So now when we put these horses back into work, they're at no greater risk for having one of those catastrophic injuries than they would have been to begin with. Yeah, but 120 days is like, that's, to, that's a to long our, time. To a race trainer, that's, that's a really a long time. long time. And the other thing that's important to understand is the reason that we don't see these catastrophic breakdowns in other classes of horses 
is that they're not doing the same thing over and over and over again. And so cowboy horses, they're uphill, downhill, sideways, dead run, stop, trot, you know, endurance horses the same way, you know, they're going at different terrains and they're not always just trot, 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 trot for hours and hours and hours and hours. So So cross training, the the type of cross training for racehorses could really help. Yeah. And interval training, which is what's popular in human athletes, especially endurance runners, fell out of favor in the horse several years ago because we're looking at the wrong thing. We're looking at cardiovascular fitness, which is not probably that important in a horse. Those horses are just naturally born athletes. They've got great inborn cardiovascular fitness that doesn't need a lot of tweaking in order to make it happen. And now we know that with the endurance horses, we would like for that cardiac recovery time, that going from the maximum heart rate to resting, that improves with training. So I'm not saying that all cardiovascular fitness is wrong. But I'm saying that the intervals that we were using directed at cardiovascular fitness was going and was we're aiming in the wrong target. Mm. What we need to do is start putting these horses in training so that we can increase that bone density and strength by altering and changing what they're doing. It's not just long, slow gallops. So the 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 repetitive stress, it's a double-edged sword. It yep. can help build that bone, create density because of the repetitive process. But when you overdo it, then it becomes problematic because it's just that thing. Precisely. Changing that gait and that direction, uphill, downhill, sideways, stop, back up, all of these things that we would do with a using horse, the thoroughbred racehorse doesn't get. So this to me sounds like a management and training issue. Absolutely. Um, was there any discussion about how the results of that study compare to the use of drugs, nutrition, or um, oh what else? You know, obviously the yeah. track, right? We can't. We know that these tracks are are. You, I listened to a podcast about the the physics and the chemistry of these tracks. It is not the tracks. So, was there any other factor that may be contributing to the same extent that these management practices are? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you. There's, there's a drug out there that's it, it's a class of drug called bisphosphonates. The first one that we had was, uh, was Tildren that we used in a horse. Uh, now there's one, there's one called Osphos. There's one called for humans, it's called Boniva. It's basically the same drug. It's used, to, it's used to improve bone density in postmenopausal women. So there's some hormonal changes after menopause that, that actually alters the way that bone is metabolized. And so bone is a, is a living dynamic structure. It changes all the time. And that's why when we start exercising young horses, we can increase bone density because of stress, but these things are regulated by hormones. And there's a, there's just a ton of physiology and anatomy there that we, we aren't even close to understanding, but we started using these, these bisphosphonates many years ago because we saw an improvement in bone density and uh, for very specific cases, one of the one of the cases would be navicular. We call it syndrome now, which is a, a a mixed bag of pathology in the horse's foot. That's beyond the scope of this discussion at this point. But we use the bisphosphonates because it tended to change things. It tended to help these horses. What it does is is that you got two classes of of bone forming cells. You got the osteoblasts and they actually put bone down, they lay bone down. Then you got the osteoclasts, which are tearing it apart. So the bone is constantly remodeling all the time, all the time. And so the bone cells that are the bone tissue that was there about nine months ago, 
isn't there now because it gets remodeled all the time. That's just part of our natural physiology. So what we, what we do with the bisphosphonates is that we actually shut down the activity of the osteoclasts, those that tear down the bone, for upwards of six months, maybe more. The problem with that is, is that is part of the natural physiology of bone healing and bone remodeling. There was a study that came out uh, three or four years ago with the AAAP, and they showed some horses with fractured cannon bones. There's a very, very specific fracture in the lower end of the cannon bone, just above the fetlock that happens in racehorses. And they're relatively easy to fix with compression screws and plates. So they had one group of horses that were on bisphosphonates when this happened. And then they put the screws and compression plates in these fractured areas. And in the group of horses that had not received the bisphosphonates, within, oh, about eight weeks, that bone had healed perfectly normally. Everything was great. In the horses that received the bisphosphonates, that bone did not heal at all. Whoa. Literally. Are bisphosphonates used very often on the track? And why would someone use them? Everything that walks in the door that's lame for the longest time was getting bisphosphonates. Interesting. Everything. It went when we first started that first generation of drugs that wasn't legal here, but it was being bootlegged from Europe. Uh, when that first generation of drugs was used here, people kind of understood that this was probably just for a very specific sets of pathology. And within just a very few years, well, it was working on this. Let's try it on that, which is not a bad idea. I'm not saying that that's called that's called outcome based or evidence based medicine. That's not a bad thing to do. Yeah. yeah. Because at that point, I don't think we really knew exactly what this thing was doing. And again, not a bad thing, but, you know, it's that they've been they've been using it in the human population for years before we decided, well, let's just try it on horses. Well, the problem is. Now we know that, yeah, you're wiping out an entire population of bone cells. The lasting effect of that, probably not well understood. But now we know that you can test that for that drug in the blood of horses three years after the injection. Three years. Holy cow. After a single injection. And and party line on the on the companies that are making this stuff there is that, well, we don't know what kind of therapeutic effect there is. Well, is that not a problem? We don't think there's a therapeutic effect. I mean, there's a lot of these drugs out there that we don't know. I think this is really interesting. So this was a a kind of a key takeaway for you in what's happening with thoroughbred racehorses. Um, I I like that that it was a topic of conversation, that it was, you know, it was emphasized. It's been a serious topic of, of conversation and research for a long time. Would this apply to both thoroughbred racehorses and quarter horse racehorses? Any horse. Any horse. Any horse that's Any got horse. this repetitive. Absolutely. Um, either have, either is, is getting those drugs or is training in a hyper-repetitive way. It's a multifactorial problem. There's not just that one thing. I don't think there's any doubt that there's a genetic predisposition on some of these horses to break down. You know, uh, there's there's so many things. Nutritional uh, just their environment, you know, they kept, they keep them in a box stall, you know, 23, seven, you know, yeah. and, and wonder why there's a problem, you know, you know, I, I have to say, I, I, I struggle with horse racing for a, a number of reasons, especially when you mix big money with animals, the animals don't usually come out on top. However, I have to say that 
what happens in the racing industry, especially from a veterinary perspective, a medical perspective, often pushes the entire industry. The, the mistakes that happen in such a public way with racehorses, the public won't tolerate it. So you have to find a solution for this. You have to find the answer. Uh, otherwise, it's the end to racing. And then they find these the solutions or they find out what's wrong. And that trickles down to the backyard pleasure horse. I mean, big money and corporations and all that kind of get a bad rap. Uh, it's the jockey club. It's the Grayson Foundation. It's uh, all these other horse industry related foundations that actually fund a lot of this good research. It's it's not all about the money, quote unquote, because you got to have the money to fund the research. I mean, like, for example, you know, when Merck or, or Pfizer or somebody else comes out with a new drug uh, and they, they charge a lot of money for the new drug, but they will put billions with a B in the, in the R&D, the research and development before they could get it through the USDA so that we can start to use it. And so, yeah, it seems unfair that things are that expensive, but it's that money that actually drives the research. And so the Jockey Club, the Grayson Foundation, the American Quarter Horse Association funded some of my research when, when I was in grad school. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, we, we appreciate the money because that's what drives so much of the research. And the AAP Foundation, I can put a plug in for that. It's called the Foundation for the Horse. They're a charitable organization. They take money from folks and they give it. They give it as scholarships to veterinary students. They give it as research grants and proposals. And and, and the majority of this, of I, I don't know what the percentage would be, but the vast majority of the real good solid research comes from private donations. It doesn't come from a government program. Mm. So that that drives a lot of this. And the and the beautiful part about having that is that, that that's how we learn. Again, that's one of the ways that we learn that pace warmer and flu and rhino boosters every 60 days is not a good idea. Well, I can think of at least 20 different directions that we can take this conversation, but we do have to wrap it up because time is running out and you're a busy guy. Thank you so much, Dr. Siemens, for joining me today. Tell our listeners where they can find out more about you if someone wants to tap into your expertise, listen to stories, get your book, or just become a groupie like me. Oh, well, thank you so much for that, Helena. I appreciate that. The book is called Never Trust a Sneaky Pony and Other Things They Did Not Teach Me in Veterinary School. And if you want to get a hold of me, we're going to have some very exciting new features that's uh, coming directly off of my website, which is cornerstoneequine.com. Or you can just Google search Madison Siemens and it'll send you over to cornerstoneequine.com with one E between the uh, cornerstone and equine. Dr. Madison Siemens, thank you for joining me today. Um, will you come back and we can talk more about some geeky veterinary stuff? Because that was really fun. <laughs> oh, I love to talk nerdy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And you can see how easy it is to go off on a tangent. And when you've got two people who want to talk geeky horse stuff, we can go on for hours and hours and hours. I will take him up on his offer to come back and talk some more. I encourage you to find out more about him, but just go to stallandstable.com, episode 108, show notes, and I will link you over to his website, his Facebook page, and where you can find out about his new book. And that's going to be a wrap for this episode. If you need help with your horse business, your farm, your boarding business, training, you're a pro rider, you're a veterinarian yourself, and you need business advice, please make an appointment. 
Just go to stallandstaple.com. My calendar is up there. It's live. It's real time. Book an appointment and you and I can sit down and talk about whatever it is that ails you. And that's going to be a wrap for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs>